All right, everybody, why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. St. Thomas Aquinas, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, it really is an honor to be here. We've been asked to, to be the opening keynote speaker, and wonderful to see so many people, uh, you know, before we begin, just listening to uh, Father make the plea for supporting Aquinas, uh, such great work that they do, the Aquinas Institute, and they really uh, could use some, some help, not only by classes, and also because it's a big empty space right here. I was expecting Shopline space to be right here. <laughs> I can't afford that. So I'm getting my shot at Shopline out of the way before we begin. You knew it was coming. So I, we're talking today about Pope Emeritus Benedict. And during my time in seminary in the 90s, uh, along with John Paul II and Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, Ratzinger, Benedict, um, was the biggest influence on my own study and my own understanding. But over the time, maybe because I just like simplicity and clarity, really has been Ratzinger more than anyone else. Uh, always going back to his works, now in seminary, able to quote and to be able to share his knowledge with the guys. Uh, a little trivia, actually. Uh, my class, the diaconate class, in 1999, was ordained by Cardinal Ratzinger. One of the blessings of being able to be in Rome is you're ordained by a different prelate. And so our class had Ratzinger, um, which was announced a week after I had agreed to be ordained back at home. <laughs> so... Anyhow, it's Jesus who ordains you, so just use an instrument. Close to, close to fame as I had. So anyhow, today I'm going to be speaking on his anthropology, which means uh, Pope Benedict's understanding or vision of the human person. A lot of times, for the sake of efficiency, I'm going to be using the word man. I do not mean to be non-inclusive. We're talking about men and women. It's just going to make it a little bit easier. Before we get into uh, our reflections tonight, I just want to make a few notations. First of all, I'm exclusively looking at his work before he became Pope, just as Colonel Ratzinger. So I'm not going to really refer to Benedict. I will probably refer to Ratzinger to note the fact that everything that I'm really referring to came before he was elected to the Sea of Peter. Number two, I'm going to do my best to make this not so much an academic presentation. Um, it's 7 o'clock on a Friday night. My brains can't handle that. My brain can't handle that. Uh, I'm going to draw a lot from his writing, but I'm going to try to make it as accessible and maybe even as applicable as I possibly can, particularly in trying to refer to ways that the insights that I'm trying to share tonight have impacted my own ministry. And then finally, just to be very honest, Ratzinger has so much stuff. And 
not all of it is translated into English, and my German is terrible. It's basically non-existent. Uh, so I have read a lot of his stuff in English, but there's no way that I would have the expertise or the time to give you a comprehensive understanding of his anthropology. And of course, I'm not expected to do that tonight, but from my own reading and my own understanding, I want to offer to you five themes that over the years in my own reading and study, I've seen continuously come up in Ratzinger's writing as it refers to the human person. And what I'm going to do is structure um, our reflections tonight over those themes, often drawing from his writing, and I'll do my best to tell you when I'm quoting something from him, um, and then trying to wrap it up with sort of a final observation that actually just came to me yesterday as I was wrapping everything up. So this is the first, let's say, trait or characteristic of Cardinal Ratzinger's anthropology, is that the human person is created for and exists in relation to God or more specifically, in relationship with God, and even more specifically, as we'll see, in dialogue with God. This word dialogue is going to become very important. So persons in relation. For those of you who have had your basic Trinitarian theology, you're going to know that in the Trinity, persons, the three divine persons, are defined by their relationships. And as a result of our own understanding of what it means to be a human person, is connected to our understanding of what it means to be a divine person. And so we were created, because we were created in the image of God and the trinity of persons, to exist in relation, to find fulfillment in relationships with other persons. He says, a being is the more itself, the more it is open the more it is in relationship. We're going to talk a lot about relationships over the course of today's reflection, but the fundamental relationship that is decisive is, of course, our relationship to God. The more he, man, is in relation with God, Ratzinger says, who is his ground, the more he becomes a self, a person. So the more that we live in relationship and have a relationship with God, the more our own personhood comes out. Now, uh, this is an aside. Ratzinger wrote a fair bit or commented a fair bit on evolution and the theory of evolution. And so I'm not going to really get into his, his thought on this as it connects to his anthropology. But one of his, his key insights is that as, the, as man evolved, the evolutionary leap that sort of made us rational creatures was his ability to think of or have the concept of an infinite being, of God. So as soon as man had that, we can assume potentially that he was able to have that soul infused to become created in the image and likeness of God. But he will go on to say that this evolutionary leap is not primarily intellectual and in the fact that we can think of God or think of this creator being that's beyond us, 
but it's him in relationship with that being. There's one thing about thinking, oh, there is a God. There's another thinking that I can be in relationship to God. But for Ratzinger, and this is like if you're going to highlight certain things from today's talk, for Ratzinger, the key term to understand personhood isn't necessarily relation or relationship, but dialogue. Dialogue from the dia logos to basically logos word to speak words to each other, across to each other. When we have a dialogue with another person, it's the difference from a monologue, or I'm talking to myself, I'm speaking across to another person. And then hopefully that person is speaking back to me. Ultimately for Ratzinger, his anthropology is defined in that man is a dialogical creature. That's your big theological word. A dialogical creatures with other human persons, but primarily with God. And so God is the one who initiates the dialogue, but man is a creature who, he says, is capable of knowing God and of replying to him. So God initiates the dialogue. He sends the logos. He speaks the word. We hear, we receive the word, and we can speak back. He continues, the distinguishing mark of man seen from above is his being addressed by God. The fact that he is God's partner in dialogue, the being called by God. And so this is something that's very important, is the, the idea of logos, the idea of reason. We are reasonable creatures, and we can receive and understand the logos in that dialogue with God. But here's the other key point, and this is one that you can take to prayer, is that this dialogue with God is primarily expressed in and through prayer. The way we dialogue with the Lord is through prayer. Prayer is a relationship, but it is a dialogue. As I said, where we hear the word and in prayer able to respond. Ratzinger says the decision to pray has a very comprehensive character. Praying means recognizing that there is a creative love by which everyone lives and which is accessible to everyone. And when we access that being through prayer and we receive the word, we realize that that prayer is the center of human self-realization, he says. We are becoming who we are created to be as persons in relationship, as persons in dialogue with the Lord. So to use a fancy little Latin term, we could say that ultimately man is homo orans. The man who prays. The man or woman of prayer. So his is essentially an anthropology of dialogue as prayer. Think of that. We become who we're created to be when we pray, when we dialogue with the Lord. And that's something through my experience as a priest now for almost 23 years, and particularly working with young people, to watch them as they begin to grow and take ownership of their faith. Young people, college students, have no problem being in dialogue with others, particularly through text messaging and other social media apps. 
But what I saw was that ability then to dialogue transform into prayer, to see the Lord begin to move and draw them into deeper prayer, and not just saying prayers. I say this all the time. It's actually praying. Saying prayers is not necessarily praying. It's just mouthing off. A dialogue is a listening, but more of a receiving of the word. To be able to see these young people who are hanging around eating pizza all day, all of a sudden at 6 a.m. are in the chapel praying. Spirit's moving. They're receiving and listening to the word. And it's been a gift, a tremendous gift, to see that transformation beginning by the word being planted. So this dialogue with God is the first part. Man is a man, a creature of prayer. But it finds its fulfillment a great degree, in the next fundamental aspect of Ratzinger's relational anthropology, or dialogical anthropology. And this is something you are going to see over and over and over again if you read Ratzinger, that man comes to know himself in relationship with Jesus Christ. It's in and through Christ. Now, we can develop this on several levels. First of all, Christ is the Son of God. Made man. Jesus is. And so the Son of God as a person of the Trinity is defined by his relationship to the Father. And so this this word Son, Christ describes himself as Jesus. I'm the Son of God in relation to my Father. This whole idea of relationship and dialogue is expressed in this. We're going to see more about it later, but he says that Jesus quote, speaks and acts not of himself, but by the working of another from whom he comes. His whole existence is mission, being sent, relationship. And of course, this is his relationship to God the Father. And so if we're going to understand who Jesus is, and then eventually man in relationship to Jesus, if we're going to understand Jesus as the Son of God, we come to know him through the relationship with the Father. But where does Ratzinger say that we come to really see and truly understand Jesus' relationship to the Father? Not in his theological speaking, not in the Sermon on the Mount, but in his prayer. And that intimate time that Jesus spends in prayer with his Father. This is how we come to know who the Father is, in and through the prayer of Jesus. And so you can really underline that. In a certain sense, his Christology, the study of Jesus, is founded on Christ's relationship to his Father in that eternal dialogue between Father and Son. Here is an essential quote that really gets to the heart of this. Without Jesus, we do not know what Father truly is. This becomes visible in his prayer, which is the foundation of his being. A Jesus who is not continuously absorbed in the Father and was not in continuous, intimate communion with him would be completely different from the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus of history. In Jesus' prayer, the Father becomes visible and Jesus makes himself known as the Son. The unity which this reveals 
is the Trinity. And so he has some beautiful things to say in a number of different places and homilies that he gave and essays that he wrote. But he says that it was St. Peter's witnessing of Jesus' prayer in the Gospel of Matthew that led him to be able to make the profession of faith that he was the Son of God. Think of it. Imagine the chance to watch Jesus pray and that deep communion with the Father. What, what we can imagine would have on us. But he, Peter, understood that he was the Son of God. And so Christ is that perfect man, a divine person, whose existence is defined by his relationship, his prayer with the Father. And it's through Christ, as I said earlier, that man comes to know who he is. Christ reveals man to himself. And of course, this is rooted in the, the, the Christological personalism of Vatican II. Of course, we know Ratzinger very involved in the council. And so I've got to quote Gaudium et Spes, number 22. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Again, to understand who we are, we have to understand the human person in relation to Christ. And to understand who Christ is as the Son of God, we have to understand his relationship to the Father. And so it's Christ. And it's dialogue with the Father that reveals what it truly means to be a person. Ratzinger says that Christ is the fulfillment of the entire human being. And from this belief, the Christological concept of person is an indication for theology of how a person is to be understood as such. So if we're going to understand what it means to be a person, being in relation as a human, we better look at Jesus as him as a divine, not a human person. I don't want to be accused of heresy here. For, for theological people, that was funny. But anyhow. <laughs> look, if this recording gets to my seminarians, they bet they're going to tear me to shreds. Oh, no, he's a heretic. Um, I'm not. Don't worry. Uh, it's that relationship with the Father through prayer. So it's Jesus reveals what it means to be a person, what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. Ratzinger says the New Testament calls Christ the second Adam. And because he is called the second Adam, or the last Adam, he is also then emphatically called the image of God, the icon of God. This means that it is in him alone that the full answer to the question, what is man, is to be found. And so, by studying Christ, by studying his relation to the Father, we have an insight of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. But the truth is that he not only reveals man to himself, but man can be in relationship and dialogue with Jesus. So we can be in relationship and dialogue with our Creator, but we can be in relationship and dialogue with Jesus. One of the things that Ratzinger talks about so much is that Faith is an encounter with a person, person of Jesus. In our union with him, we become his brother. 
And we are able to follow him as a disciple and not just follow behind him, but follow with him as he dialogues with us as his friends. And in doing so, and that communion we have, that dialogue we have with Jesus, we enter into Christ's dialogue with the Father. This is the key part of almost anything that I'm going to say about this Christology. For Ratzinger, this is done by coming to know who we are, not just by being in dialogue with Jesus or witnessing his prayer from a distance, but actually entering into and participating in Christ's prayer, of entering into his eternal dialogue with the Father. I remember reading this in seminary and saying, what in the world is he talking about? But it's a significant point and essential to our understanding of who Jesus is and our understanding of who we are. It's a long quote, but an important one. The Christian confession of faith comes from participating in the prayer of Jesus. He's not speaking figuratively. He's speaking literally, spiritually. From being drawn into his prayer and being privileged to behold it. It interprets the experience of Jesus' prayer and its interpretation of Jesus is correct because it springs from a sharing and what is most personal and intimate to him. Thus we have arrived at both the very basis and the abiding precondition of the Christian confession of faith. Only by entering into Jesus' solitude, only by participating in what is most personal to him, his communication with the Father, can one see what this most personal reality is. Only thus can one penetrate to his identity. This is the only way to understand him and to grasp what following Jesus means. The Christian confession is not a neutral proposition. It is a prayer, only yielding its meaning with prayer. I'm going to say this. Being a Christian today is not possible unless you pray. The world will eat you alive. You will become a zombie. Just going through the motions. Unless you actually pray, it's not going to be possible to know Jesus or to be drawn into that prayer and find that communion with the Father. Now, this sounds wonderful, and everybody's mind says it's beautiful, but how do we do it? How do we actually enter into the prayer of Jesus? Not just by praying to Jesus, that's dialogue with Jesus, but we actually get inserted into his dialogue with the Father. It's mind-blowing. And I don't understand it. So why am I even going to try to explain it? I don't know, because i got to talk for about an hour. That's probably why. From what I get in my own reading of this, and look, and this is Ratzinger. This is not John Paul II. If John Paul II was talking about this, I definitely would have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> but the essential key element can be found in the Our Father, the prayer that Jesus teaches us and asks us to pray. So Ratzinger will say that only Jesus can say, My Father. We don't pray, My Father. We pray our Father. And so what that means is we are praying in and with Jesus, sharing in his prayer and sharing in his sonship. Of course, that's a 
a much deeper way of understanding things. It would bring in baptism and whatnot. And so it's through the Our Father. He allows us to be one with him and praying to his Heavenly Father. But in doing so, it also connects us to the we of the church. So this may be prefiguring a little bit what you're going to hear tomorrow in his ecclesiology. And so I really want to suggest that there's going to be one book that I suggest that you read, particularly for Lent. It is a series of the homilies and talks and conferences he gave in 1983 to John Paul II and the members of the Curia. It's in English called The Journey to Easter. It's Lent. It's the best Latin book you could read. And it talks a lot about what I'm speaking here today. So this is from The Journey to Easter. All others have the right to pray to God as Father only in the community of that we which Jesus inaugurated. Because they are all created by God and created for one another. Relationship. To assume and recognize the fatherhood of God always means being turned towards one another. We can of right call God Father in the measure with which we are inserted into that we in which God's love searches for us. And so there is a reference here clearly to the church. And so it is the church praying with Christ. Christ is the head. We are the body. And so, of course, there are, yes, we share in his sonship through baptism, but through baptism we also become part of the communion of the church, which is his body. And so we're not talking monologue. It's talking dialogue. The Father will speak to us. And yes, indeed, he can speak to us directly in our prayer and our participating in Christ's prayer, but he also then uses the church he uses other people to speak to us. Threataker says, man is not engaged in a solitary dialogue with God. He does not enter an eternity with God which belongs to him alone. The Christian dialogue with God is mediated by other human beings in a history where God speaks with men. He speaks to us, but he speaks to us often through other people. If you're sitting in prayer waiting to hear God the Father's voice, Maybe you will, but chances are he's going to speak to you through others. But it's going to take you to be able to listen to it by being one with Christ in his prayer. Again, in a certain sense, I kind of took a derailed here because it's just a beautiful thought. And it's something I would love to pray more about and reflect on. But my experience and with people who have begun a journey in prayer, as they go deeper, Jesus comes alive as a person. Not just they know about Jesus, they know to encounter him, particularly in the Eucharist. Something which I've been fascinated about. The way that young people want to spend time with Jesus in the Eucharist, particularly in Eucharistic adoration. I'm a thing like, Jesus would be in the monsters, would be in the tabernacle. His rays shoot through the tabernacle. I mean, it's fine. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to be with Jesus. The gaze that saves. It's great. And so, but by coming to know Jesus, I've seen a real knowledge of God as Father. So often people say, oh yeah, I pray to God. I know God. That, that's an amorphous blob. 
But to hear, particularly young people say, I know God is my Father. I speak to the Father. Most people say, I speak to Jesus. I speak to the Father. It's beautiful. And in that, they come to know and experience not only Christ's love, but the Father's love and a desire to share with others. And that's the third point. Man, again, in relationship as a dialogical creature, first with, the, with God, the Creator, then with Christ and with the Father, and then now, as sort of I alluded to before, man in relationship or dialogue with others, other human persons. We've already seen a human person's capacity for relationship and is being created in the image of God. It was a trinity of persons. And so, but as he says, the Trinitarian we prepares at the same time for the human we. We are called to live, not, we don't pray to other people. We're going to remove that from here. We're not worshiping other individuals, but we are in dialogue with each other. Not just relationship. We have to dialogue back and forth. We're not created alone, but to be in relation and dialogue with others. He says it needs to be stressed that no man is closed in on himself, that no one is capable of living entirely of himself or for himself alone. We receive our lives each day from without, from others who are not ourselves yet relate to us in some way. Man's self is not contained only within himself, but exists almost even more so outside of himself. He lives in those on whom he loves. He lives in those on whom he loves, and those on whom his life depends, and in those for whom he lives. Man is relational, and his life, his very self, only exists by way of relationship. I by myself am not I at all but am so only in relation to a thou. And it's to this thou that makes me myself. This thou ultimately being God. That we are also called to live in relation with other vows, other human persons. And so key to this is developed elsewhere, particularly in his pontificate, is that relationship, that dialogue is a dialogue of love. Love. As much as we, we talk about Ratzinger was a head person, there's, he's a heart person. He's Augustinian. He's not a, he's, he's not a Thomas. Sorry, Aquinas Institute, he's not. He loves St. Thomas, but he really loves Augustine. He says in a homily from 1995, to be truly a human being means to be related in love, to be of and for. This is something that he talks about in one of his, his talks, famous talks on truth and freedom, that, that truth and freedom is connected to who we are as free beings, and we are from God, and we exist for others. So I get my being, my freedom from God, but it's there, not for myself, but for others, to give to others, to be in relationship to others, and that love is the defining characteristic of a Christian. This is one of my favorite quotes from Ratzinger. The Christian is the person who does not calculate. Rather, he does something extra. He is, in fact, the lover who does not ask, how much farther can I go and still remain in the realm of venial sin, stopping short of mortal sin? 
Rather, the Christian is the one who simply seeks what is good without any calculation. We are defined by love. We are called to love, not just willing the good for the other. Sometimes it's going to be very difficult to love others. But there is a joy to loving. And there's some people, <coughs> we derive a great pleasure from it. And this interpersonal relationship among human persons takes on another dimension when we are incorporated into Jesus. So we as humans created the image and likeness of God, called to love one another, to exist in a relationship, but we're inserted into Christ. We're inserted to his prayer. Things change. For in Christ, the man, we meet God, but in him, we also meet the community of those others whose path to God runs through him, and so toward one another. The orientation toward the community of mankind, the only acceptance of this community is movement towards God. What does not exist apart from Christ, and thus not apart either from the context of the whole history of humanity and its common task. So basically, as we are united to Christ, we're united to each other. The Father, yes, but to each other. And it, and it can be done through his humanity, through the incarnation, but also through baptism and the Eucharist, the sacrament of life. And so as you may see tomorrow, uh, this encounter with the sacramental life of the church is the specific formation, along with the spirit that we receive in both, of the church as communion. This idea of communio in Latin. Man exists for communion with others. That dialogue, that relation, results in communion, union with the other person. And therefore, this idea of communion, our community, becomes the grounding of Ratzinger's ecclesiology. The church as communion, sealed by the Spirit. And so my experience, too, I see someone start praying. They come to know Jesus. They come to know the Father. And then they come to really begin to love their neighbor. A lot less gossip, a lot less backbiting, a lot less animosity. Pay attention to others around them. Friendship, community. I, I don't want to be on the periphery. I want to be part. I want to be involved. There's a great freedom to loving. There's not as many walls up. There's not a holding back from giving and receiving. There's also a great love for the church. I can try to force you to love the church. The person who comes to know the Lord and love another, love of the church comes along with that. Even in her imperfections. Just as we love other people in their imperfections. We show mercy. And so, it's not easy. There are ups and downs, which leads us to the fourth point. And this is what I'm not going to develop too, too much because I don't want to stay here for too long. That man is defined by being on the way. On the way. So let me rephrase that. Ratzinger's is not a static anthropology where we just stay here. He constantly in his work comes back to this theme of the journey of being on the way. To use our fancy Latin phrases, he is homo viator. He is on the way. We're journeying. 
And so there are different levels of this journey. One is to become more like Christ. He says that hence the relation of the creature to Christ, of the first Adam to the second, indicates that man is a being on a journey, being characterized by transition. He's not yet entirely himself, but he first needs to become so in a definitive sense. And this is going to be an interior transformation. And so if we are looking at the Bible as a whole, then here is, in the midst of our thoughts about creation, we are suddenly confronted with the Paschal mystery. The mystery of the grain of wheat that has died. Like the grain of wheat, man must die with Christ in order truly to rise. Of course, this happens through baptism. To truly stand upright, to truly be himself. Only when this happens does he become what he is actually destined to be. So there's got to be that Paschal mystery. We're going to die to self in order to rise. That's the journey. We're on the way. And you know what it ends? When you die. All your life. Because it is, but it's in and through Jesus who is what? The way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. But here's the great point. We're journeying with Jesus to the Father, but we're also journeying with others because we don't do it alone. Because we exist as a we in communion, yes, and in dialogue with the Father, but with each other. He says, Christ, whom Scripture calls the final Adam, that is the definitive human being, appears in the testimonies of faith as the all-encompassing space in which the we of human beings gathers on the way to the Father. He is not only an example that is followed, but he is the integrating space in which the we of human beings gather itself towards the you of God. And so that's the the communion of persons formed and integrated in and through Christ. Yes, through baptism, through dialogue, through grace. So we're on the way. We're not just wandering. We are going somewhere, and our ultimate destination is communion with the Father. Our ultimate destination is heaven. We are eschatological beings, call that. As Christians, we are called to become a member of the body of Christ, alongside whom we will one day sit at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the table of Jesus Christ. Talking about the eschatological banquet thus becoming his brother, and with him, a brother of Jesus Christ, a child of God. Always to see man in terms of his future, as the one with whom we will one day sit at the table, knowing that we will never reach the destination until we become capable of doing so. And so you can see is where we came from, created for a relationship, presently for a relationship with Jesus and the church, and where we're going. We're on journey. We're on the way. So be patient with each other. All right? Christ is patient with us. How long is it? We can't be like the kids in the back seat. Or we're going to get there. I don't know. The truck might hit you tomorrow. <laughs> but when that time comes, God willing, the progress of the transformation, an interior personal transformation, that's what following Christ is. And so what I've seen is people who maybe were caught up in despair 
and, and doubt, when they begin to pray, when they encounter the Lord, when they enter into community, they become a person of hope. Hope is that virtue of the homo viator. We have our eyes on heaven, who keeps his eyes on the prize. Not a false optimism. Ratzinger will say that. We're not talking about that. But keeping our eyes towards heaven. Hope in the next life, but also hope in others. We don't give up on people. We work with them. We're willing to accompany them. And although the journey can be difficult at times, it is not drudgery. It's not pure toil. And this brings me to the final point. And this is my second favorite point. My ultimate last point. I said there was five, but there were really six. Because <laughs> the six sums all these other up. The human person in being created for heaven and being created for union with God is created for joy. Homo gaudii. G-A-U-D-I-I. The man of joy. Through all of Ratzinger's writing, joy is always there. Always there. And the true joy that we experience as humans and Christians can come from a number of sources. One, it comes from knowing that we are loved and affirmed in our being. The root of man's joy is the harmony he enjoys with himself. He lives in this affirmation. It's good that you exist. Because we're created by God, and hopefully our parents and others affirm that. It's good that you exist. There's joy that comes from that. It's a byproduct of believing in the gospel, the good news. Hey, the good news. We're saved in Jesus. We're redeemed. If we believe in the good news, we should be joyful and not walking around like we're miserable. But most importantly, it is a fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. I love this quote. We may say that the spirit is the spirit of joy and of the gospel. One of the basic rules for the discernment of spirits could be formulated as follows. Where joylessness rules and humor dies, we may be certain that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus, is not present. Furthermore, joy is the sign of grace. One who is serene from the bottom of his heart, one who has suffered without losing joy, is not far from the God of the gospel, from the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of eternal joy. So ultimately, God is the source of our joy. And when we get to heaven, we're going to experience beatitude. And with that, there's going to be that eternal joy. But we can begin to share it on earth. Man is not to be understood only in terms of his past or in terms of the isolated moment that we call the present. He is oriented towards his future. And it is only in the perspective of his future who is fully revealed. Now, we've probably already said that. Hence, we must always see the human person as someone with whom we will one day share in God's joy. Again, it's not that I'm created for joy. But you are created for the same thing. You're not a burden to me. You're a joy. (laughs) Now, here, though, is like my kind of favorite quote from Ratzinger, and it's unexpected. And it's so appropriate for me to give it now. Most people freak out when I give them the quote and they don't know where it comes from. It's very appropriate. Most people, Ratzinger, talk about all kinds of stuff. 
he was technically, I would say, a controversialist. He talks about controversies in the church, politics and religion, technology. But he also talked about Mardi Gras. People don't know that. He talked about Mardi Gras. And so I think it was so perfect that we're, we just had Mardi Gras. So you may be still feeling Mardi Gras. <laughs> and listen to this. This is awesome. This is, this is the, the, the intellect. This idea that he was this rigid person. Not at all. Not at all. Mardi Gras is to Ash Wednesday a time of laughter before the time of penance. A time of lighthearted self-irony whose laughter speaks a truth that may well be closely akin to that of the Linton preacher. Thus Mardi Gras, when it has been exorcised, when the, the demons and the drunkenness and the bacchanalia is removed from it, <laughs> reminds us of the words of the Old Testament preacher, a time to weep and a time to laugh, Quelleth. For Christians too, it is not always a time for penance. There's likewise a time for laughter. Yes, Christian exorcism has routed the mask of demons and replaced them with the laughter that has been exorcised. All of us know how far removed from this ideal our present Mardi Gras often is. He's talking about Germany. I can. <laughs> how frequently it is mammon and its henchmen that reign there. This is why Christians do combat. Not against, but in favor of laughter. Love that. This is why Christians do combat. Not against, but in favor of laughter. To struggle against demons and to laugh with those who laugh, these are inseparably united. The Christian has no need to be schizophrenic. Christian faith is truly human, and humans laugh. We have joy. And I can tell you, the holiest people that I know and you would figure it too. If you think of the genuinely holiest people you know, they are the most joyful. Always. Always. Saints are not somber and serious. They can laugh. They can have a, a true sense of humor. So we're called to joy. So all of that Mardi Gras quote, it's sort of a side. But leading up to this sort of final quote on joy, he says, something I constantly notice is that Unembarrassed joy has become rarer. I think it's I, unembarrassed joy. I'm willing to be joyful. I don't care what you think of me. I'm willing to laugh and goof off. Joy today is increasingly saddled with moral and ideological burdens, so to speak. When someone rejoices, he he's afraid of offending against solidarity with the many people who suffer. And look, I get it. I get it. I don't have any right to rejoice, people think, in a world where there is so much misery, so much injustice. I can understand that. That's him. I can understand it too. There is a moral attitude at work here, but this attitude is nonetheless wrong. The loss of joy does not make the world better. And conversely, refusing joy for the sake of suffering does not help those who suffer. You're miserable. I'm miserable too. Let's all be miserable together. No. The contrary is true. The world needs people who discover the good, who rejoice in it, and thereby derive the impetus and courage to do good. In this sense, we have a new need for that primordial trust, which ultimately faith can give. This is going to become important in a minute. 
that the world is basically good, that God is there and is good, that it is good to live and to be human. This results then in the courage to rejoice, which in turn becomes commitment to making sure that other people too can rejoice and receive the good news. Again, we, we know who we are. It's good that we exist, relationship to God and Christ. And we want others to be joyful. We're joyful for others. We're all joyful together. Beautiful. That's what we're creating for. Now, those are my five points. That I think sort of sums up at least as I understand five key elements of Ratzinger's anthropology. Relationship with God and prayer, relationship with Christ, relationship with others, on the way to heaven and to experience joy then and now. But as I was sort of writing all this down and reading all my books and praying, I, I said, well, I, I gotta land, I gotta, I gotta have a conclusion. <laughs> and it, it came to me, and this is often sometimes genuine insights too, that in a way they're all loosely connected to something else. Again, I didn't have a lot of time to really draw this out. This idea of relationship to the Father in prayer, identity as sons in Christ, and relationship and dependence on others, the church, this process of becoming, and this unembarrassed joy. Now, all five of these things describe what we are called to be as humans, but it describes a very specific demographic. What is that demographic? Children. Kids experience these things. And what really made me realize this is that here is this German theologian who lived in Italy, and I was so surprised. I found at least four or five places, both as Pope and as Ratzinger, that he wrote about Therese, St. Therese. He wrote about it in the very first chapter of the introduction to Christianity. He wrote about it in his Principles of Catholic Theology, which is probably the most difficult thing that he's ever written to understand. He talks about her, and he specifically talks about the little way, the way of spiritual childhood. And it started me doing some research on the Internet. I didn't have time to do more research, but maybe I will later, on Ratzinger's connection to childhood. And guess what? He's talked about it. He's talked a lot about it. And there's specifically one place in the middle of that book, The Journey to Easter. He talks about it. Specifically focusing on Jesus, the sons, preaching on children. He talked about it a lot. And so Ratzinger says that, that, that he talked about it a lot because he experienced it. He had the best mom, but he had a great stepdad, foster father. He experienced human childhood, so he could talk about it from that experience. And so therefore he could say, what did he say? If you want to get to heaven, if you want to be on the journey, you must change to become like a little child. I'm not a Greek scholar at all. The word is strepho, to turn, to turn and become a child. But what he does is he connects it to the more well-known Greek word metanoia, conversion. You must change. You must have a change of mind 
to become like a little child and to live the little way. What does it mean to be a child? What does it mean to do that? He says it means to be small, receptive of help from another. But this is what he most importantly says. We could go then to say that childhood assumes an almost extraordinary place in Jesus' preaching because of its being what corresponds most profoundly to his most personal mystery, his sonship. His highest dignity, referring back to his divinity, is after all not power possessed by himself. It's based on the fact of his being turned towards the other, God the Father. And here he quotes the German exegete Joachim Jeremias. He says he puts it very well when he says that to be children in Jesus' sense means to learn to say, Abba, beloved Father. But only if we look at it seeing Jesus as Son can we estimate the immense power which resides in this word. Beloved Father, Abba. So sonship is what? Being a child. You never quit being the child of your parents. You never stop. You could be 80 years old and you're still a son. You're still a child. And so we are allied and called to share in that sonship and relationship to the Father that Jesus did that was constituted of his being. And so he says that becoming a Christian means saying Father with Jesus and thus becoming a child. God's Son. God in the unity of the Spirit who allows us to be ourselves precisely in this way draws us into the unity of God. So foundationally, if you wrap all these things up, I believe one can make an argument that his is an anthropology of childhood. Understood as relationship. Understood as a progression understood as union with Christ's sonship, and kids are pretty joyful. That's the unembarrassed joy. And that's the most important thing that I've experienced, is that as people begin to grow in prayer, as they begin to experience the love of the Father, they know they're on the way, they can't wait to see the Lord, they're experiencing joy, they become aware of their identity as beloved sons and daughters. Identity as children of God. Sons and daughters, but beloved, going back to the baptism, Christ's baptism, which is that one that gives us the connection to our own baptism. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, or in some translations, in whom I delight. I know they're delighted in by the Father. It's not a critical coach or some capricious tyrant. He's a loving Father. And in that, and truly live that anthropology of childhood of who we're all called to be. Amen.